So like I said, we're in the second week of this series on glory, not necessarily a word that we use all that often, but a concept that we're relatively familiar with. So let's, let's dive in. I think we all know people who are a 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, they're a 10. They're just awesome people. They're, they're fun to be around. They're charismatic. Everyone seems to be attracted to them. They're attractive people. Uh, but we all know people who are 10s on a scale of 1 to 10 who think they're an 11. And they want the world to know that they're not just a 10, but they're actually an 11. We all know people like that. They're just awesome people who are gifted and talented, but they want to be sure that you and everybody else knows that they're not just awesome, they're the awesomest. That's my son, Joe Slee. He's a 10, but he thinks he's an 11. Here's a picture of him. He was uh, get, getting an x-ray to make sure his leg had healed after it was broken, and that's obviously a good time to take a selfie because every moment of every day is a good time to take a selfie. Abby is more than happy to acquiesce there. And so this idea of he's a 10, he's so smart and he's funny and he puts a smile on everybody's face, obviously, uh, but he's an 11 and he wants everybody to know it. Let me give you an example. So relatively frequently at the Abbott household, I'll be in the kitchen talking to Abby, uh, trying to pour into our relationship as a loving husband, or maybe I'm sitting on the couch uh, being the best citizen I can possibly be, uh, really just minding my own business when Josie will come around the corner and punch me. Now, <laughs> Josie's this tall, okay? So the punch doesn't necessarily land this area, and not so much this area, <laughs> but somewhere in between. And so after I gather myself, again, this is totally unprovoked. I've never done anything to, to provoke or exacerbate my children. And so, um, so after I gather myself and I say something like, Josely, what was that for? Or Josely, what was that for? Depending on the situation. <laughs> he'll say, uh, really without hesitation and very consistently, well, because I'm a big man. That's his response for assaulting me because he's a big man, right? He's a 10 who thinks that he's an 11. And it actually is really cute when he's seven years old and don't worry, after he goes to bed, after we turn the lights out, I sneak into his room, I get him back every time. Like, <laughs> justice is done, don't worry. Uh, so it's so cute when, when, some, when a seven-year-old does it, but when you're 27 or when you're 47 and live this way, society has to pay the price. It's society that gets punched in the gut, right? So we live this way so often. We all know people that are like that. And, and honestly, I think there's parts of us all the time, uh, maybe not all of us all the time, but parts of us all the time that live this way. In certain arenas of our lives, we live this way. We're trying to move up the ladder. We're wanting to get as much respect and adoration and glory as we possibly can get for ourselves. And when we live that way, either in, in, our, in our workplaces or, or at home or in the classroom, wherever the case may be, whenever we live that way, it almost certainly means pushing other people to the side, pushing them out. Because people that are difficult or different or, or take extra work or distractions, that just gets in the way of us pursuing glory for ourselves, respect for ourselves. And I think the reason we do this I think the reason we live this way is, is we're told that, that this will actually lead us to be happy. This is what will make us happy. This is what we're made for, and this will make us happy. We'll be fulfilled if we get to the top of the mountain. But what if that's not true? And what if I can prove it? Recently, the longest study in human history on 
on human happiness was concluded. It was a 75-year study. Four different directors had to see the process through. And, and what happened is the, the study started in 1938 with two groups of people. They wanted to make sure that the environment wasn't kind of the root cause of, of happiness in, in the human condition. So two different groups of people. One were sophomores at Harvard at the time the study began. The other group were children in tenement housing in Boston, the poorest of the poor in Boston. Those were the two groups. And over those 75 years, they followed them. They ran them through tests. They asked them about their work, about their home lives, about their health. They, they ran them through uh, mental examinations, psychological examinations, uh, physical, medical examinations. And, and at the end of all of this, these people, they went on to become bricklayers and teachers and doctors and lawyers. There's even a U.S. president in the study. At the end of all of this, the director said this, good relationships keep us happier and healthier period. This isn't shocking. There's more findings. They found that social connect connections are really good for us, and loneliness literally kills us. They found that the quality of relationships matters more than the quantity of relationships, and that people satisfied in their relationships at 50, the most satisfied at 50, are happier at age 80. In fact, satisfaction in relationships is a better indicator of health than anything like cholesterol level or blood pressure, any strictly medical factor. The director concluded this way, over and over and over these 75 years, our study has shown that people who fared best were people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, and with community. This isn't shocking, though. If I, if, if I would have told you or somebody would have told you, hey, you're going to go to church today and they're going to tell you relationships are good for you and isolation is bad for you, you would have been like, yeah, I, I've heard that message before. So that's what you get for coming to church today. You get to see cute babies, hear me talk about my son, and I'm going to tell you that relationships are good for you. It seems so obvious, but this stands in stark contrast to a recent survey of adults 18 to 35. They were asked a simple question, what's the most important life goal? Over 80% of those surveyed said the most important life goal is to become rich. The second, on, you know, the second most uh, answered in that question, what is, it was, you know, what's the most important thing in life? 50% of those same people said becoming famous is the most important thing in life. So the world seems to be telling us, lean into work, push harder, achieve more for ourselves to get noticed, to get glory. And we buy it hook, line, and sinker because we're given the impression that those things will make us happy, but it's not true. The science tells us something very different, and so does the scriptures. Last week when we began the series, we were looking at John 17, which is an extended prayer of Jesus where he talks about glory over and over and over again, who gets it and how. And we're going to return to that because I think there's so much still to unpack in there. And this prayer in John 17 is, is part of what's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's a section of three chapters in the Gospel of John where Jesus is sitting with his followers really for the last time as a, as a group before he's arrested, tried, and, and eventually goes to the cross. And chapter 17 is his concluding thoughts, his prayer before they go out and head to the garden where he's arrested. And so John 17, we'll return there in verse chapter 1, begins this way. This is Jesus praying. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. 
Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus continues his prayer. He turns it to his disciples that are sitting there in the room, and he prays that they would continue to be bold and courageous in proclaiming what they know to be true in the world. And that's, in fact, what they did. And he concludes his prayer this way in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. On the night Jesus is arrested, before he goes to the cross, he prayed. And he prayed for you. And not in like some symbolic sense, like priesthood of believers, like, yeah, he prayed for believers. No, he prayed for you, people that would believe the message of the gospel passed on for 2,000 years. He prayed for you. And you know what the prayer was? He prays fervently that we'll be united. Why? And in in really, one of the culminating moments of his ministry, he prays for you specifically, and he prays that you'll be united together with, with other believers, with other people. Why that? What's the aim? Well, the aim, Jesus says, is that if we're united, the world will believe in him. Jesus tells us, He came to bring a message of salvation, knowing God and knowing that God sent Jesus to redeem the world. And then he passes it on to us and he says, if you guys are united, the world might believe it, might believe that Jesus was sent for the whole world. So what he's saying in this prayer is that when we live what we're made for, it will point people to who they are made for. If we live what we're made for, it will point people to who they're made for. It's worth noting that in the time of Jesus, when he prayed this prayer, the idea that God's love was meant for the entire world, every, every color, every background, every economic status, was actually a completely radical concept. In the Jewish worldview of the day, and Jesus was Jewish, but in the Jewish worldview of the day, it wasn't God's love, it was actually God's wrath that awaited the world that was outside of the Jewish culture. And so this was a radical thought. But Jesus said the world will know that God sent him not to condemn the world, but to save it if we're united. If we display a willingness to share the glory, it will get noticed, not just in this room, but outside of it as well, because sharing the glory is actually a truly unexpected thing. Jesus' prayer actually got answered really quickly. This idea that if, the belie- if his believers are unified... It will result in people believing Jesus was the Savior. It actually happened really quickly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. Those are the stories of Jesus' life. The very next book of the Bible, Acts, tells what happened in the first church. It talks about the church coming to life. And in Acts chapter 11, we see a church coming to life in Antioch, which was this ancient 
metropolitan. It was a trade route, very diverse, lots of people in and out of it. And, and it says in the scriptures, in Acts, that, that believers in Jesus were first called Christians there in Antioch. People were noticing these followers of Jesus. And this is all happening just a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, maybe eight years, it's probably 42 AD. The, the church is exploding across the world. Northern Africa, Asia, the Mediterranean, it's everywhere. The church is, is exploding. And when we read the description of the church from Acts, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote Acts, he describes it in a unique way when he talks about who made up the church. He says this, There at Antioch in the church, there were, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Maybe just some superfluous detail about backgrounds of people, but I don't think so. Luke mentions not only the names of the leaders, but also their races. He, he, he lists their backgrounds. So in the church, there, there, were, there were sub-Saharan Western Africans. There were Northern Coast Africans. What would today be Libya? There was a Jewish man from privileged upbringing. There was a Roman citizen. These are different backgrounds, different socioeconomics, different races, different colors united, and the world noticed. They were first called Christians at Antioch. I suspect the world would notice today too. In a world that seems to want us to pull apart Disunity seems to be the easiest route in our world today. I think if we pursued something you might call inconvenient unity, not just unity with people that are like you, but unity with people that actually think a little different than you, if we pursued that, I think the world would notice today as well. If we displayed this idea that we could unite different colors, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different socioeconomics, different abilities for that matter, if we could unite around a truth, that that which holds us together is stronger than anything that could divide us, I think the world would notice. So how do we do it? How do we do it, not just in this room, but outside of this room as well? Well, 1 Peter 4:11 says, do all things for the glory of God. Okay, I think we can get on board with that idea, but how do we do it? Well, there's a good check, because you might say, well, it kind of feels like sometimes I'm doing things for the glory of God, but sometimes I might just be doing it for me, and it just kind of seems Christianly. Like maybe I'm actually at the center of this thing and I want people to notice me, but I'm just going through these motions. I don't know if I'm doing it for God's glory or for, for mine. How do I know? Unity is actually a really good check. Last week we defined glory or the glory of God this way. It's the sum of all the attributes of God on full display. So his power, his sovereignty, his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his holiness, his purity, all of it result in God's glory. And it was so different, so other, that, that no one could look on it. In fact, it had to be contained. When uh, Moses is, is leading the Israelites out, he actually prays, God, show me your glory. But God's response is, no one can see it. It shines too brightly. You can't see my face and live. And so in the Old Testament, when they built the temple, they actually built a room to contain the glory of God because it couldn't be let out. It was just so different, so good, so other, that it had to be held back from people. But when Jesus goes to the cross, right before that, in John 17, he says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Essentially what Jesus is saying, God, let your glory shine through me. 
Let the fullness of who you are come through me. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus made that which was completely unapproachable, that had to be held back and, 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 and different from and away from people. He made it fully approachable. And that which is fully approachable then becomes fully reflectable. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, ton cosmos in the Greek, everything and everyone that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If our love has gaps, we're not reflecting the glory of God. So how, do, how does this play out in our, in our everyday life, in our workplace? If you're preparing a presentation and you nail it, you kill the presentation and your boss is pleased with you and all of those things, if you look back and say, was that, a, a, was that about me? Like, was it about me moving up the ladder or was I creating space for others? Was I actually caring about others? Was the presentation for the good of other people? Or was it just about me reaching the top? Because if I do the presentation and I do great, but everybody else is pushed to the side. That doesn't allow us to move in the same direction. Disunity is, by definition, going to result. It doesn't create space for others. It kills relationships. And it ultimately won't leave us fulfilled, and it won't make us happy. If I'm a mom or a dad, when I get home and my kids ask for my attention, is my first inclination to stiff arm them, pick up my phone, and say, you know what, this is my time. I put in a lot of work and a lot of effort. This is about me. Or do we muster up the strength to say that child deserves to know they matter to God and they deserve to be looked in the eye? And I'm not saying that's easy and I'm not saying we do it right all the time, but those are a check because if you stiff arm your kid and you pick up your phone, there's very likely not a good chance for unity to be created in the family. In the classroom, do you guard your ideas so that the end result will be about you getting the glory for a job well done? Or are you generous with your ideas? You make time for others so that everybody can win. Until eight years ago, um, I worked at a firm called EDSA, this incredible land planning firm. Uh, some of you know, I've talked about it before. I was an architect before I became a, a pastor. And I love the profession of architecture. I love what it does. This, this it starts with a blank piece of paper that becomes a plan, that becomes something built that's good for the world. I think that's great. But there's something about how work gets done in an architecture firm that I actually really loved as well and actually helped me get an idea of this idea of, of unity, get a picture of this idea of unity. So when there's a deadline in an architecture firm, or at least the ones that I've worked for, it almost goes without saying that you drop what you're doing and you pitch in. And so if there's a deadline, you just kind of say, okay, well, we'll work on my stuff later. Everybody all aboard. Let's figure out how to get this deadline done. And so it's the project manager's responsibility, but no one really owns it. It's just everybody comes together. So if you went to EDSA downtown, uh, probably still today, but certainly when I was working there and you walked in, on any given day, it would be very common to see around this huge table, maybe four or five people uh, working on one single drawing, a huge drawing, maybe three feet by four feet uh, of some plan view thing. And I remember when I first started working there, they said, yeah, this happens all the time. And so what, what you'll do is you'll take responsibility for one thing. So you draw all the trees on the drawing, or you draw all the, or the roads and sidewalks, or you draw all, draw all the cars, or you draw all the pools. And, and everybody takes a part of it. And I remember thinking the first time that, that we did this, I was like, there's no way. Like, there's just no way that this is going to come together. Everybody has a different style. I, I don't think this is actually going to work. And then you realize that over time, it all just blends together into something beautiful. And no one owned it. 
because everybody contributed to it. We all shared the success. Because at a baseline in the office, so uh, it was just like we want to share. We want to share ideas. We want to share our times. We want to we share. And so at that table, you might have uh, me working, and then Derek would be dis- beside me, and Brian would be, would be over there, and Brandon, and Ed, and Rob. We'd all be around one table. And if you're wondering, like, did he just make up those names? Because those all sound super white. Uh, nope, that was us. Um, just to... That was us, just every cliche white architecture name. Uh, Chuck and Tom and, no, they, they, they made those up. But, but yeah, it was, uh, that, that was us. And so we would just be around the table uh, and in the end we all, we all shared in the success. And when I think back on that, I just wonder why, why isn't life like that? Like why isn't every day like that? We're taught when we're very, very young, either from parents or, or teachers, and we teach our kids at a very young age, sharing is a better way, so why don't we share? Well, I think it has everything to do with glory. St. Augustine said, everything flows from the question of glory. The purpose of life, the way we live it, it all stems from glory. And so we know that reflecting the glory of me, being about me and pushing everybody else to the side, we know that doesn't make us happy. Science tells us that, and Jesus tells us that's not what we're made for. So to pursue the glory of God, we have to move out of self just a little bit. It doesn't mean you're not important, more on that in a minute, but it means you can't be all about self. Because remember, if you are, it won't fulfill you, it doesn't make you happy, and it's not what you're made for. So creating space for others, sharing is at the heart of reflecting the glory of God. The inverse is true as well, though, that reflecting the glory of God doesn't happen if we shrink in the background. If we say things like, well, you know, I'm not good enough and, and, and I can't contribute and I can't be a part of this, like, like you guys do it. You're the, you're the good ones, you're the talented ones, and I, you know, to God be the glory, but I, I didn't do anything. That's not how we reflect the glory of God either. James and John, who were two of Jesus' followers, they were very likely teenagers. They act very much like teenagers. If you read the Gospels, uh, at one point we're walking down the road and they asked Jesus a question. They said, when you sit on your throne in heaven in, in glory, can we sit at your right and left hand? Essentially, can we share in the glory? Another reason why I think they were teenagers is in one of the Gospel accounts, actually, it was they sent their mom to go ask Jesus, which is like, man, uh, buck up, guys. Um, but, he, but they essentially, can we share the glory with you? I think Jesus' response is shocking. Because he doesn't say, how dare you? How, how dare you want glory? He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he says something far more similar to, uh, you, you want to be great? You want to you share in the glory? Good. You have everything inside you you need to be great. You're made in the image of God. You have greatness in you. You want to be great? Good. Just make sure you have the right definition of greatness. And then Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. That's greatness. So be upwardly mobile. Kill the presentation. Get the promotion. Get noticed for being excellent as a teacher, as a parent, as a, as a student, as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a neighbor. Be great. Just be sure you move forward with the right definition of greatness. And it's the cross that gives us the shape of the right definition of greatness. Jesus began his prayer, Father, the time has come. Remember, he's headed to the cross. 
He said, you granted me authority to offer eternal life through knowing you and knowing Jesus was sent to redeem the world. So right at the beginning of the prayer, Jesus says, this was your plan, God. This is what you gave me to do. But a very reasonable question, honestly, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is why? I mean, if God's God, why can't he just do whatever he wants to do? Wave a magic wand. Say, redeemed. Everything's done. Everything's fixed. Everything's put back together. Why not? Why not do that? Well, the answer simply is because of love. To me, the Bible is a, is a miraculous thing. It took 1,500 years worth of writing, compiled together 35 or so different authors, 66 different books, and at each stop along the way, there's a thread that runs through every single piece of it, and it's love. God desperately trying to communicate worth to the world, his love, his grace, the invitation to come back home, and he speaks to people where they are and how they are every step of the way. So he doesn't speak to ancient Mesopotamians like, like he would uh, 21st century scientists. He doesn't speak to first century Palestinian agrarian Jews like he would bankers on Wall Street in 2017. He meets people where they are. He's a personal God, and his love says, I'm coming your direction. And so we shouldn't be surprised that he showed up, that he got really, really close to us to speak to us how we might understand it. Again, as St. Augustine said, loves came to slay what we were so that we can be what we're not. Jesus wasn't God in disguise. He's God on display. He embodied love. And he sacrificed his life to serve others as a display of God's glory. The cross is where we see and can approach the full attributes of God, his power over sin and death, his sovereignty to save the world through his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Jesus said in his prayer, I've, come what you've given, I've done what you gave me to do. And what he gave Jesus to do was to allow us to draw near to him. We're allowed to approach God, but we're also allowed to reflect that character, that character of the cross. That's how we share in the glory. You want to know my favorite memory from the hurricane a couple weeks ago? And by the way, it's a very short list. And if you have a long list of favorite things from the hurricane, I have questions about you. Um, <laughs> This is the first hurricane that we went through. So my list goes like this. Uh, number two on the list, uh, there was not an alligator in my swimming pool after the, after the hurricane. Uh, so that was number two on the list. Number one on the list um, was uh, an event that happened at Home Depot. So uh, again, this is my first hurricane, and so I started to, to read people's Facebook posts about different things and, and different advice, and they said, you gotta get a generator. And I was like, great. I don't know how to use a generator, but if it'll save my life and my family's life, then I'll get one. And so I started this kind of quest to find a generator, and then I went to Home Depot, uh, and they didn't have any, which kind of freaked me out, because I was like, how can I keep my family alive if we don't have a generator? And so I started going all around town. Eventually, I found one at a different Home Depot, and uh, what they were doing is they got a shipment in, and they were just loading them onto carts, and they were just giving the carts to people, which is actually really smart, because I don't know if you've picked up a generator, but they're at least 20% heavier than anything that should be contained in the box that size should be. And so uh, it was really good to save people's backs. So that, but it was kind of like a cruel joke, because you know they gave you the thing, and you paid for it, and then you got out to the parking lot. 
and there was nobody to help you in the parking lot, and so you're like, hey, wait a second, uh, how am I going to get this in there, uh, in, into your car? And so there were all these people kind of like mindlessly looking around, like, where's the Home Depot help? And, uh, and so I got to my car, and then I, I did the same thing, and there happened to be uh, four of us kind of around. There was myself, a guy behind me, uh, an elderly gentleman who I real, uh, realized later had just had back surgery, um, and he had a generator, and then next to him was uh, a young Hispanic guy and uh, his niece. He had bought her a generator. Um, hopefully he taught her how to use it, because it really took me a long time to figure it out. But um, So without saying a word, it, was just, it just happened. It was a happening. Everybody just, we just moved to the elderly gentleman's car, and it was like, one, two, three, lift, and we lifted, and then we moved to the niece's car, and it was one, two, three, lift, and lifted, and then we went over to my car and lift, lift, uh, and it was high-five. We high-fived. I thought that was cool, and then the young Hispanic guy was like, be safe, and he was out, and I was like, man, that was cool. I wish I had a thought to say, be safe. That's a, that's a cool thing, <laughs> a cool way to end. Um, it just happened. The question is, who gets the glory for that? God does. You know why? because none of us wanted it. That's not what we were after. We were just seeing people, and people in need, and we were all in need, and, the, and the, the, the playing field was level, so we just helped out. Zach, uh, in his last sermon series, quoted St. Ignatius, the glory of God is man fully alive. Let me say that slightly differently. When we live fully, God shines. I think moments like that are people living fully. Because when you live fully, you can see people as people and people as people. And if they need, then you just help. It just makes sense. God gets the glory because no one else was looking for it. When we're fully alive, we see others. And serving others just makes sense. That's reflecting the cross, the full glory of God. People being fully alive. It isn't scratching and clawing to try and get to the top to, to gain our worth. Jesus, if nothing else, told us we do have worth already. We don't have to fight for it. But it's also not shrinking to the background. It's recognizing, like we talked about in the last series, everybody has worth. You have worth. So does everybody else. Now let's go live like it's true. That's what helps us reflect the character of the cross. That's how we share in the glory when we do it. And when we do that, when we live that way, when we're fully alive in that way, reflecting the character of the cross, unity has this chance to be seen and for the world to notice. One of my former architecture colleagues, the one that got me thinking about all of us around the table, uh, a couple weeks ago sent a video out to, to our old team. And... Uh, and the video was about an artist that I'd never heard of before. His name's Saul Lewitt. It was really fascinating. It was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And, and I know I've used illustrations of art in the, in the past, and, and you'll probably have to get used to it. I think there's something about art that, that picks up where words fall short and, and give us a picture of, of who God is. And so I'll use another example of art. But um, Saul Lewitt did, did this piece of art. Now, you might say, are you sure that's art? Like, what am I looking at? The staircase? No. Um, is that like some cheap wallpaper? What am I looking at? So um, it might appear that way, but that's actually not a digital print or anything of that sort. If you go to the next slide, it's actually thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of scribbles that make a gradient. So it looks like one kind of monolithic piece, but it's just that. If you get up on it, it's all these scribbles. The interesting thing about Lewitt's work 
is he ever never actually touches pen or pencil to paper. Essentially, he designs the art piece and then he invites other people to execute the art according to his design. Here's a picture. Uh, you get the scale of, of his work and all these people chip in and they all become part of it. They all share. One of my friends who was on this email chain said, I love that anyone, even those whose artistic ability is, as limited, is limited to scribbles can be part of this, can contribute. I think he was being sarcastic, but I actually think he's really right. I love that. Maybe you've been hearing all of this about sharing the glory of God and reflecting the, the character of the cross and you're like, look man, I don't have enough. Like I get it and that sounds awesome and, and I, I would if I had it all together, like reflect his glory, love and serve others like Jesus did. Like I get it, I, I love that idea, but man, half the time I don't even walk out of my house with both shoes on. My kids don't get lunch like they need to. Like I'm just hanging on by a thread. Here's what Jesus says. From right where you are, join in. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to even get better. Just scribble. Just join in. That's how we share the glory. That's how we point, how we point people back to God's love, by executing our hours according to the artist's design. And it starts with this. A lot of time we start our prayer, God, here's what I need, meet my needs, and, that, and God wants to hear that, he does. But maybe we start our prayers a little bit differently. God, what are you doing in this world around me, and how can I join you? How can I be a part of it? You pray that every day for three weeks, I think God will give you some clarity. And here's one last thing that I would wanna to say to you if you're like, look, I don't have it together. You're a 10, you are. You're made in the image of God, the creator of the universe who spun it all into existence, knew you and cared for you and created you with good works which you prepared in advance for you to do. You're a 10. Or maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking something like this, like, yeah, I, I get it. It's a good idea. And I'll, I'll definitely put that in my back pocket and I'll think about that later. Like, I, I like that idea a lot. This idea of, of seeking unity, reflecting the, the, the cross, and that creates unity, and that unity displays God's glory, and people are attracted to Jesus when we have unity. I get it. That's, that's cool. I'm in, but here's the thing. In my workplace, if I don't push for this raise, I'm going to have to be in this house that was too small two kids ago for another couple years, and I just can't do it. I get it. But let me just say this. It's not what you're made for. You're made for more than that being the chief aim of your life. The word glorious is reserved for certain things. I saw the sunrise this morning over the building. It's glorious. Maybe you've seen a big cathedral with vaulted buttresses, and you're like, man, that's glorious, or painting, something like this. It's reserved for things that are otherworldly, unique, like something you've never seen before, never experienced before. Unity is like that particularly today, particularly in our time and place in history. And unity comes from seeing others and serving others, reflecting the character of the cross. And if we're willing to live that way, it would be a glorious thing. And Jesus' words would come true again and again and again. I and them and you and me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. Then, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them.
God created the world good and he created us to do good in it, to be fully alive, to see people, to make space for others, to serve others as he served us, to invite others in as he invited us in, in unity and for unity. That's where we reflect the glory of God. That's where we share the glory of God. And the promise lived out there is that people will be attracted to Jesus and the world will look more like it was intended to look and more like we want it to look. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the challenge of your word, the challenge of your truth. Thank you that we can rest knowing that your love, no matter where we are in our own personal lives, is for us. We could never go too far that your love won't find us. Thank you for the comfort of that truth. And thank you for the challenge of that truth that there's no one else who could go too far that your love wasn't meant for them and you've invited us. Jesus, you said you gave us the glory that God gave you so that we could reflect your character. Help us start there. Help us ask you again and again and again, what are you doing in this world, God, and how, how can we be a part of it? Help us seek unity in a world that seems to want to pull apart. And let that be a light of truth to a world that is looking for you, whether it knows it or not. In Jesus' name, amen.